Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Welcome to our book club episode for October. We are so excited to share the incredible novel Land of Milk and Honey with you all. A rapturous novel about a young chef whose discovery of pleasure alters her life and inadvertently the world. Si Pam Zhang is an award-winning writer, born in Beijing and based in the US. Her writing has appeared in Best American Short Stories, The Cut, Esquire, The New Yorker and The New York Times, to name a few. She's a National Book Foundation 5 under 35 honoree. Her debut novel, How Much of These Hills is Gold, was published in 2021 to much acclaim. Longlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize and the Rathbone's Folio Prize, it was also a Barack Obama Book of the Year, a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award, and winner of the Academy of Arts and Letters Rosenthal Award and the Asian Pacific Award for Literature. Her latest novel, Land of Milk and Honey, is out now and is already getting rave reviews across the board, and we are thrilled to have Pam joining us today. Day. So welcome to a pair of bookends. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, thank you for coming on. We're so excited to have you here. And always we ask our first question, which is what are you currently reading? Ooh, so I just started I'm a Fan by Sheena Patel. It was highly recommended to me by someone at my publishing house. You know, full disclosure, they don't also publish her. So it was a true recommendation. Um, and I also happened to be reading a book of poetry. I've been trying to carry one with me wherever I travel. And right now it's Pilgrim Bell by Kaveh Akbar. Oh, amazing. I wish I was like one of them people that could carry like poetry with me. I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not cultured. I should, shouldn't I? You can um, read a lot more poetry than I do. I do. I do. I love a bit of poetry. Well, to, but... be, to be fair, I only started this habit like four months ago because a poet oh. friend of mine told me about it. And I was like, that sounds great. And I, I, I do highly recommend it. I tend to take one poem and read it multiple times in different contexts. And it's interesting to see how like my emotional relationship with the poetry changes. Oh, I love such a that. good idea. And it is something I'm definitely going to try and adopt. I, I do love, I tend to binge poetry. It's really bad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, especially like collections, I think the last one I binged was Rupi Kaur's Homebody. And I was just obsessed. So I binged it in like, three minutes and then was like okay now I need to sit with poems to actually read them again because I was just like this is so good (laughs) so I am just gonna jump in straight onto your book Land of Milk and Honey firstly excellent title I feel like your titles are my favorite how much these hills is gold and Land of Milk and Honey are both excellent titles and also the cover for this book now our listeners can't see this but this cover is exquisite like art (laughs) I can't get over it it's gorgeous how many conversations have we had Hannah about that cover (laughs) so many (laughs) gorgeous but how many people have said that to you um most people almost everyone and I you know I have to give it all to the cover designer who is named Henry Petrides he's really really incredible he was such a trooper finding like the perfect photo to use because you know with photography especially of human bodies there's such a fine line between good and cliche or egregious he really really found the correct one oh Completely. That is is incredible. I want to start off with your book by talking about sort of about your protagonist, who I believe is unnamed. And your protagonist is a chef 
And I feel like stories of chefs and their livelihoods and restaurants are sort of really having their kind of cultural moment right now. You know, we've had the menu, the bear, boiling point. They're all very much on trend right now. And I wanted to ask, why do you think as a society we're so invested in these stories? And what interests you personally about the the role of a chef? I would be very curious to learn when those other references you just listed were first started being created. Because I know for me, um, I've always loved food, but this book came about in the beginning of 2021 when we were still deep in the, I suppose, middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it was a time when we were cut off from so many of our usual human joys. And food was one of the last connections I sort of had to my own body as a site of pleasure. And food, once I started being able to eat out again, came back to me as a much more holistic experience. I think, you know, there had always been elements of community in sharing a meal, but it really, really hit me after not being able to share a meal out for so long, how much of this dining experience was about creating this moment that exists only for an hour or two that is magical and dependent on the mood and the presence of whoever happens to be around the table. Fascinating, honestly, because some of the some of the scenes you need to you need to read this book. So bookends, if you're listening, come on, you need to get this in your hands. Can you tell us a bit more about the genesis of the novel? So, so how you came up with it, or was it was it like you said about like being in the pandemic and and things yeah. like that? Like, how did it come about? Yeah, because the pandemic was so bleak, um, I wrote a book that was in many ways an escape hatch out of it for myself, right? It's a chef and it's also a chef who happens to live in an even bleaker world than our real one, one where a fog has come down and killed off food crops and everyone is left with no sunlight and eating this kind of soylent-like gray, gritty meal replacement. And she receives this mysterious offer to go to a mountaintop colony on the border of Italy and France that is helmed by billionaires who are trying to create their own utopia and food is at the center of it. So I was really leaning into a lot of the pleasures that I could not have, the pleasures of travel, the sort of mystery and wonder of going someplace new, the pleasures of these communal meals. And it was also in many ways my own way to reinforce this idea that we need that kind of joy and excitement in order to survive, right? Like during the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about essentials, right? Essential professions, essential things in our lives, and they happen to sort of circle around having things like food and shelter and health, which are absolutely important, of course, to live like day to day, week by week. But, you know, I have suffered depression. And to me, it was not a rhetorical question to ask, like, what is the point if you have only those essentials, right? Like, what is the point of living decades on this earth? And so I think the pandemic for me was a watershed moment that really made me reckon with the fact that we need pleasure to survive. That is a human necessity because we are not just animals. And, you know, asterisk on that because I do think animals also want some of those things. But in order to not just be maybe flesh automatons, we need to embrace these things. And so the question then becomes in seeking our own sources of pleasure, how do we thread that line between something that is purely individualistic and selfish and also having some kind of engagement with the 
world and some kind of moral conscience about what our pleasure might mean for others. Absolutely. And it's I find it such a fascinating subject because a lot of the time I feel like with either dystopian novels or just with people that are writing novels set during the pandemic, a lot of the issues are kind of social, you know, and, you know, being either isolated on your own or um, struggling with the people that you're you're in lockdown with. Mm-hmm. However, what you focus on is on pleasure. And I think that a lot of the time that's quite overlooked mm-hmm. because to me, a lot of my pleasures were taken away. I don't know, Hannah, you would agree, like, you know, going to the theatre and a lot of what me and Hannah do ourselves is quite dependent on us being together or being with a lot of people. And I think that what I really loved about this novel was the discovery of pleasure mm-hmm. and how you can bring that to yourself. And it's just, it, it really is a fascinating subject. Was that something that you you really wanted to hone in on? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, And one, one reason was that I also think that as difficult as the pandemic was, as difficult as these circumstances can be, moments of great catastrophe also make clearer for us what we need and what we want. And when talking about women's pleasure specifically, I think that so often it is considered a frivolous subject or decadent or just suspect in some way. It's not serious enough, right? Just because it's women's pleasure, which so often is codified as this kind of like eroticized, flimsy, silly thing that is so linked to the male gaze. But I wanted to take it seriously. I wanted to take it rigorously. I really wanted to explore what that meant. I mean, in many ways, my novel in this terrible isolation, this terrible dystopia that the protagonist is living in, her isolation also gives her this strange opportunity to really sit with herself and kind of ask the question of like, what do I want when nobody is watching? What do I want when some of the external pressures of the world disappear for both good reasons and bad. It's it's like, oh, it's, it's a terrible tragedy what happens in the world of the novel. And it is this sort of weird opportunity. And I do feel like sometimes, especially when chatting with my best female friends, I realize that they are so often thinking of their lives in service to others that it takes this kind of crisis to reckon with what they want, right? Like I think of all the all the people, women and other genders as well, who during the pandemic also discovered that, hey, I really love taking care of plants or hey, I really don't like going out every night or hey, I love being alone, right? So those were like small glimmers of opportunity um, in a time of catastrophe as well. You've you've made me you've made me think of so many different things there about um in regards to pleasure and sort of this kind of concept of like who deserves pleasure you know we saw that during the pandemic which you've just made me think of but then I also see it in our economy in the the UK at the moment you know people can't afford anything more than paying their bills and it's mainly upper middle class people that can kind of afford more than just their bills everyone else is just expected to live a very basic life and I think that also leads us into sort of the the setting of your novel which was this kind of strange secluded environment built for the uber wealthy that's sort of shrouded in secrecy and and I'd love to hear you speak a bit more about what inspired that setting and how you you went about creating that so part of it was that I used to work in tech in San Francisco and so I think I still have you know people in networks that are still half a foot in that world and it's a world in which um 
you have these incredibly powerful men sitting at the top who have created this culture of evangelism around their own quite selfish pursuits, a perfect utopia, what have you, right? People who are out there and when facing the potential end of the world, instead of thinking like, how can I use my billions to sort of contribute to uh, environmental legislation and, uh, you know, taking us off oil instead of like, why don't I use my billions to create a secret colony some, somewhere? So um, it was taken pretty directly from my fascination with how these people come to be and how they decide to use their wealth and their power in such particular and non-communal ways. And the the chef character is somebody who is frankly seduced by that, right? Um, at the start of the book, she is so intently focused on just surviving that she's like, yes, I will sort of like anchor myself to this community of the uber wealthy. I will work this job for them. I will do whatever I need to do to survive. And it, I think that is a reflection of the fascination that so many of us have, continue to have with these sort of like tech billionaires, right? Mm -hmm. That we somehow still find a part of ourselves that is drawn to them, that is drawn to this idea of what they're creating. Yeah, I think it's, it's such an interesting topic. And I imagine that it was interesting for you to kind of observe those people in, in tech. We, me and Lydia are always speaking about class on the podcast and about, you know, class structure and how that kind of, how that comes out, how that shows up in society and where we sit in our kind of working class backgrounds and sort of what people, what people get that are kind of above us and whether they deserve that, whether they've earned that and you know, there's, it brings up so many questions for us and you you brought up so many questions for me in your book. Yeah, I, I, I'm also someone who like I woke, I grew up in a very impoverished background. My family was on food stamps in the US for a good deal of my childhood. And, you know, I've definitely jumped classes and a lot of that has been through this, you know, I'm not going to deny a lot of it is like hard work and talent on my part. But a lot of that I think is also being anchored to certain institutions that have a different class association, right? In the US, you know, I got to go to an Ivy League university, which just opens you up to a whole network of places. And then, you know, like once you have that affiliation, it allows you to just jump. And so, uh, yeah, I've, I've sort of like seen that for myself. Yeah. And it, I, I mean, not to bang on about it, but, you know, because me and Hannah do, but, you know, for, for us in the UK and our class system, you know, it, it is very hard to jump, to jump up. I think sometimes it is more difficult for us to jump because despite the fact that both me and Hannah are university educated and a, a very good university, it's still our accents, uh, the way that we look, the way that we dress, the way that we act. A lot of that is is very hard to, in some ways, you have to shrug that off to become, mm -hmm. to get to the next stage. And that, and when you're proud of where you come from, um, which obviously uh, Hannah and I are, it's difficult to then, because you don't want to shrug it off, you want to keep it, right? So it's it's very interesting to me, the whole the class issue. One of the things that I think defines wealth or class is the way we eat, you know, because a lot of the time, Hannah and I, I mean, Hannah's obsessed with food. <laughs> she won't mind me saying. We wouldn't go to a very fancy restaurant and eat very fancy ingredients and a lot of the time in the book when they were kind of wasting mm. 
wasting, you know, these precious ingredients. That to me was like, no, I, w- I was more kind of like our protagonist mom. Like, no, you boil it to the, to the within an inch of its life and keep it forever. So it, it's just such a, a brilliant way of understanding class and the way that we sit within it. Because I, I do think food is such a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up um, because our protagonist also right comes from a different class background than the people that she works with. And initially when she comes onto the mountain and she has this abundance of food that is given, you know, a high monetary value in, in our world and especially in this world in which food is such a scant resource, things like foie gras, things like, you know, steak, things like duck breasts, all those kinds of sort of fancy ingredients she it's strange for her because those have such external value and she sort of slowly comes to realize that those don't satisfy all her cravings to bring it back to the question of like an appetite Mm -hmm. and coming to define and recognize the sort of boundaries of one's own appetite Mm -hmm. and trying to tune the world out she comes to realize that some of the things she craves are like you know probably technically terrible foods (laughs) that her mom used to make or she kind of loves some of the like processed foods she grew up on Uh, I think there's a mention in the novel of, of Doritos very simple, <laughs> right? And so there's this real push and pull and this real like class and cultural awareness um, of exactly what you said, what food signifies on the plate. Absolutely. And I mean, Hannah, if I made you chips, beans, smiley faces, <laughs> chicken nuggets, all frozen, all processed, you'd be, you'd be loving it, wouldn't you? It's a very working class British meal, isn't it? It's absolutely. But, you know, again, it's, it's one of those things where it's like you'd never serve it in a restaurant. But my gosh, every now and again. Those potatoes are like little hash brown things with like eyes. Yeah. I, it, yeah. yeah. Little smiley faces. Yeah. Honestly, amazing. Change your life. I mean, it tastes like nothing. Nothing. Like cardboard. But honestly, there's something about a working class mum's tea mom's that's tea. what i call it like, mum's yeah. mum's just she, she ain't got time she's just gonna get everything out freezer she's gonna chuck it on a on a baking tray she's gonna chuck it in the oven <laughs> for 20 minutes she's gonna bring it out she's gonna put it on a plate and you're gonna eat it's it tough. and honestly a lot of this novel brought that back to me this nostalgia for good old-fashioned working class mum's tea <laughs> I also just want to really quickly recommend an article that you wrote, Pam, for Esquire, and it was about your grandmother's cooking. And I loved it so much because to kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Summarise. There we go. You know exactly, you know my brain. Uh, To summarise it, you know, your point of writing that article was to say that, yes, all this good food is, is great, but what you most crave and what grief taught you is that, it's the the bad food that's made by people that you love. And mm-hmm. I think that's exactly what we've just been speaking about is that, yes, the food that we grew upon is probably not great for us, but it was made by, you know, our mums and it was made with love. And it was, you know, that's all the time that they had was to, to get that out of the freezer and put it in the oven. And I just thought it's such a beautiful article and um, the way that you used 
food to explore grief. And I would actually love if I could get you to speak on that. Yeah. Um, thank you for, for reading that and for recommending it. Yeah. The, the article, it has some overlaps and themes with my novel. It's effectively about, yeah, this time after my grandmother died. And so my grandmother in Beijing raised me until I was four years old. And so by the time I moved away from her, I was still at such a tender age that I don't have any sort of specific memories of of ages zero to four. So my relationship with her has always been this kind of strange kind where it was very deep and it was almost animalistic in the way I related to her because, you know, I lost my grasp of Mandarin as I got older. And so she and I, she didn't know any English. So she and I could never really speak. We could never articulate ourselves in the way I'm accustomed to communicating with people is really spoken through touch and through food. And so after she died, I realized I, I just had this like incredible hole in myself. I was trying to fill with uh, versions of her cooking and I kept seeking out these very specific Northern Chinese dishes that she would make. And I like the ones I had in restaurants weren't correct. And then I started like, you know, on my own trying to perfect these recipes. And I think I'm like a pretty decent cook. And I was like referencing uh, like great food, like Chinese food blogs and recipe books. But it felt like the more perfect that got, the farther away it took me from the taste I was missing. And so I realized it was less tied to even a specific food or a specific flavor than just this like intentionality mm -hmm. and of what's behind the food of who is making it for you. And this just feeling of being being cared for like that is actually, I think, especially in, in our world, the greatest luxury of all just having something made for you just for you specifically by someone who, who loves you. Right. I think that that's. The thing of like you can make a sandwich for yourself and it's all right. Someone makes one for you and it's amazing. <laughs> but again, on that line of, of grief and things, my own experience with the pasting of my mother and Hannah knows this was that the she pasta. used to make like terrible pasta. I mean, it wasn't even nice, but like pasta, tomatoes, like, and I remember making it for myself because I, I felt poorly. I didn't feel great. And it was always like my comfort meal. So I was like, I'm going to make it for myself. And I made it and I took one bite, one bite and I cried and I'd not cried the whole time. I'd, I'd been dead stoic. I, I felt really okay. And then all of a sudden, just the flavor of the food and it, it just was so evocative and, and brought all these memories back of like mom looking after me, mom being like, you're poorly, lie on the couch, I'll make pasta, you know, and it, like still to this day, I can't, I cannot make that meal for myself anymore because it's so intrinsically hers. And I remember like calling Hannah like, I'm crying over pasta and I don't know why. <laughs> and he'd just be like, yeah, that's normal. <laughs> but, you know, the food has this power. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's so incredibly beautiful. And I agree with you. Um, food has this really transportive power. And I think what it, the power it has, is it sort of cuts through our thinking minds, right? And sort of brings you back to sort of an instinct that you have that cannot be denied, right? There are so many especially, you know, as women moving through the world, as a woman of color, the way the chef in my novel is as a woman of color in, a, in the service industry. There are so many concessions you make in life, so many small ways in which you sort of stuff down what you want to conform, to fit in, to make things a little bit easier for everyone around you and thus 
make things a little bit easier to you. And a lot of us, I think, end up living these lives that where we we just like have like little sort of little little lies, perhaps little lies to ourselves littered through our days. But when you eat something, the way it tastes in that first second, that that can't be denied. There's like an honesty to that that no one can deny. I know that we've touched a lot on food now and the power of it, but as Liddy's already mentioned, like food and food writing, it brings me so much pleasure. I love it so much. <laughs> and it is, it's literally the basis of mine and my boyfriend's relationship. It started bonding, we started bonding over our love for food. <laughs> so it's a very powerful thing. But your novel gave me um, lots of food for thought please forgive the pun um, oh can i just applaud the pun i'm just applauding the pun. <laughs> i'm glad it's good <laughs> in thinking about about food and desire and sort of hunger and appetite and how these things kind of intersect and how it, they kind of grow beyond the literal and i wanted to ask you what drew you to exploring food and its relation to the the mind and the body in this way I think that I definitely think of food as an art form. And it's interesting because like most art forms, it has sort of its like high and low forms, right? And as somebody who, right, like grew up not very wealthy without much access to most most art forms, like food and literature were the only ones that I felt like I, because of libraries and because, you know, everyone does eat at the end of the day, I felt like those were the only ones that I like fully understand so in many ways, this was uh, this was the easiest way for me to grapple with this tension between the human need to just like simply feed ourselves food as like simple physical nourishment and then art as a kind of higher and not more profound, but different kind of nourishment. And food really seemed like the, the best vehicle to explore that. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I also loved the way that you explored this through line between hunger and appetite in relation to food, but also in relation to sex. And that also brings up desire in a sense of female desire and female ambition, how all these things intersect. It's just a very, it's it's just such a juicy novel. I love it so much. (laughs) That is is the tagline. So one of the things that I found really interesting was the variety of meals he used. And I mean, this is again, me being a working class girl, being like, what even is that? <laughs> like, I've never even heard of that. At one point we have, and this isn't, isn't too much of a spoiler, but we have like mammoths served. But what was your um, research process like for like, I'm going to cultivate these meals. I'm going to do, you know, seven courses and they're going to look like this. Was it kind of like, I'm just going to be completely spontaneous and improvise it? Or were you kind of like, I'm going to research exactly what it should be like? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't, when I write the first draft of any novel, I don't do research going into it because I feel like the first draft really has to be sort of like pure emotion and I fiddle and refine um, the details later. So the first draft of the novel, it just came from like a lifetime of eating and observing the, the we've already talked about class and food, but also the, the racial and cultural hierarchies within the food world. The chef is a, 
of Chinese American background. But in order to get this job on this this exclusive mountaintop colony, she has to cook high-end French food. And I'm just deeply interested in how ascendant French food and Western fine dining still are in the food world. How, I mean, it's the simple question that came to me. It's like, why is the average American, and I'm guessing the average um, Brit as well, like, okay with the idea of paying like $60, $70 for a chicken dish at a Michelin-starred French restaurant. But most of them would balk at the idea of paying more than like $15 for a chicken dish at a Chinese restaurant, right? Mm. It just tells you so much about the intrinsic value associated with each culture and therefore also with the people who make that food. And so a lot of the sort of elaborate banquet meals that the chef is preparing for her wealthy employers are classic French dishes. And um, at some point I did do some research. And so there are like classic French dishes that are so absurd that they border on fantastical. There's one um, in the book that is made at this famous French, French restaurant in Lyon, uh, which involves like a whole chicken that is cooked within like, I think a pig's stomach, like it's in this like inflated pig stomach and it's in a bath of of liquor and truffle and you cut it open and it's it's like it sounds ridiculous but that is a real dish and so like the already the absurdity that already exists at sort of like the finest fine end of French whole cuisine um, made it easy for me to then vault into foods like mammoth right um, which is kind of off you know it's it's offbeat but i don't think it's that far of a step and especially when you sort of take that idea of like well at some point people it isn't about the value people ascribe isn't about the ingredient itself right it isn't maybe even about the taste it's about exclusivity and so sort of how do you take things to this sort of penultimate form of exclusivity, maybe something like mammoth, when they're able to eat this this meat that tastes probably horrible, but is something that literally no one else can eat. And that's what they're paying for. I was just really, really interested in, in how at the far end of fine dining, we get to this complete divorcing of food from what normal people eat. Absolutely. I find it really interesting, the whole subject, because for me... Even something that is, it's, I mean, it's commonly served at the moment, which is, you know, a whole, it's like a whole bird and it's kind of sort of deep fried or whatever. And it's, you know, you just eat it whole. That to me is like, oh my gosh, it's not that hard for me then to think if we had the capacity that we could eat kind of woolly mammoth or saber-toothed tiger or, you know, something that we've got the DNA of. And then it's just, it honestly, it was like, it's bonkers. But it makes sense because we do, it's like, in a way, we divorce that kind of feeling of like, I find this food pleasurable. We divorce that feeling so that we can have something that's absolutely, but no one else has ever had this in the world, you know. So I'll eat, I'll eat this vile piece of meat because it's exclusive and yeah. only you can have it. I think it's, a lot of it, like you said, Lynn, is, it is based on wealth and mm. they, they aren't interested in necessarily how the food will taste. It's the fact that they can afford to taste that, you know, they want to mm. splash out their wealth on this. Like you said, it's an exclusive dish. There's almost, it's almost repulsive to read about those characters in the book that <laughs> they aren't interested in eating a meal because it's it's a communal thing and it's joyful and it's pleasurable. 
They just want to be at a seat at this table and to be able to say that they've had this exclusive meal. Yeah, I just think it's there was something really like grotesque in that. I feel like I should have said at the start as well to all our bookends listening, if you are reading this, you will need uh, copious amounts of either like tortilla chips, (laughs) nuts, so, like some you need some on the side because honestly okay. it made me hungry the whole time <laughs> i was like oh, i could stop eating <laughs> yeah i think tortilla chips are a great wreck anything like crunchy or chewy i think is a good snack to have on the end 100 honestly i'm just saying it should be written on the cover <laughs> ring snacks <laughs> I really want to ask, because I've been really curious about it, in your novel, we obviously knew that there's a, it says on the blurb that the, you know, the smog is starting to spread and crops are being affected. So what I mean when I say it's on the blurb is that I'm not spoiling anything by telling people that. And I've obviously with me and Lydia, we're we're both actors and we've worked in theatre and I find there's a huge push in in theatre but also with a lot of my writers writer friends that there's a lot of push now for artists to write more about climate change and sort of explore that and I was curious about whether it was a conscious choice for you to kind of tackle that topic could you talk a bit more about about how you approached it um in terms of the the smog that you write about in your book and how it impacts the the environment and the the crops yeah, the smog in the book was pretty directly inspired by the wildfire smoke that has been a presence in California in the West Coast of the United States for at least the past, I want to say like seven or eight years now. So I know that more recently, I know there were, there were fires in Europe this summer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was wildfire smoke in New York too this past summer. So it's become more present um, to a larger part of the population. But that wild, that, that, that feeling of that feeling of heaviness that descends when the sun is blocked out mm-hmm. um and literally leaving your house is a danger you can like feel it in your lungs you feel trapped inside that is something that is so fundamentally devastating that i have a hard time putting it into words it, it, you know it's you know i think that by this point intellectually we all understand the things we might lose due to climate change flora and fauna and all that, but the emotional impact of not having the sun, which is something we all take for granted, mm-hmm. it's huge. And so the smog in the book comes from that. And it also comes from the fact that it just feels so, it's so literal and it feels so metaphorically on point, right? That the world just turns gray, that your mood just turns gray, that everything feels dreary and heavy and sort of your the entire your entire life is like bracketed by this feeling of like gloom and loss. Oh, that sounded really intense. yeah it is is intense so you know you're not you're not hiding anything it's something that we all need to speak about and we all need to be be mindful of and people have spent so long avoiding it that you know look at the mess we're kind of in you know it's it's now something that you can't possibly avoid because it's happening and it's real yeah um And, and at the same time that i wanted to convey the like immensity of that kind of horror you know again the book is not a bleak book um no the book like i said was a bit of an escape hatch it was an, a, an opportunity for me to explore as i was referencing before how even in these times of grief and catastrophe how can we get something out of them how can we move forward 
through them. And so in terms of the climate aspects of the book, I was really interested in how there is, I do think there is like this modern tendency because there is so much bad news all the time to just fall into this attitude of of despair and of assumed pessimism that um, because things are bad and uh, more bad things will happen tomorrow, that things will only ever be bad. I think that that stance, oftentimes unintentional, of cynicism is really problematic and really unhelpful, right? I think that cynicism is frankly an immature mindset. I I think I used to be more invested in that as, as a younger person when I could be like, you know, I know better than everyone else. Everything's, everything's screwed up, right? Um, <laughs> but I wanted to explore how this kind of cynicism and this real fear of what we lose might actually get in the way of us finding opportunities and sort of accepting some of the things that have happened and being like, okay, this is how things are. How, where do we go from here? Right? Like if we spend all our, uh, all our news articles, all our sort of, all of our time thinking about everything that's gone extinct, everything that's no longer being the same, that doesn't leave us space to be like, okay, and then what do we do from here? Again, I'm not saying that obviously, like I'm a huge believer in climate legislation and climate activism, but there needs to be that belief that there are things still possible that we perhaps haven't thought of yet, right? And I take a lot of that optimism, frankly, less from like humans than from the endurance of the planet itself. Um, And what I mean by that is the most heartening fact I hold deep within myself is that even if we humans really mess it up and sort of like kill ourselves, the planet's going to actually be just fine. It will survive. It will thrive. It will find a new way to be, right? There's a kind of immense intelligence and durability that is beyond human understanding. You know, for example, what happened in Chernobyl, right? After uh, we bombed (laughs) the living daylight out of that place and humans left the area, the plant life came back, the animal life came back. Um, A similar thing happened in Yellowstone, which is a national park in the United States, um, where first we killed off all the wolves and then scientists decided to reintroduce wolves into the population. And even again, these scientists, experts in their fields had no idea of the ripple effect that bringing wolves back because, you know, wolves affected, I think, the local like caribou or reindeer or deer population, and that affected the sort of growth of trees, which affected beavers, which affected water flow. And so like literally there were streams that had been dry for as long as people could rip back, right? Um, There's this sort of awesome, wondrous durability about the planet. Um, And I think holding room for the capacity of the world to continue to surprise us and for us to to continue to surprise ourselves is is really important. And I think your optimistic mindset towards that subject is definitely reflected in the novel. And I don't think it's much of a spoiler for me to say that the way you tell this story is the protagonist is telling us from a future perspective. So she's looking back on everything that occurred in this mountaintop sort of colony and um, you know she's relaying that story so we know that there's a future and we know that there's possibility to to endure everything that's happening so the optimism definitely comes through and I think that's a great way to look at it is that we actually have so much at our disposal to change you know the the potential outcome of the planet if we you know if we care and if we're willing to make that positive change so I, yeah I really loved the way you explored that theme. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that framing device of the book being told by the narrator um, from the future at a much older point was really important to me. I found during the pandemic that some of the only books I was able to read for a while were biographies of women writers and women artists. Um, and it was because I really needed proof, frankly, that mm -hmm. women could live through these periods of immense heart, heartbreak and grief, like war, devastation, and still come out on the other side and sort of make great and endearing art out of it, that out of a period of disaster and catastrophe, there could be something fertile in it too. Absolutely. And it, it's such a wonderful book. I cannot... I cannot recommend this book enough to people because it, it is truly a book that will stay with you long after you've finished the last page. And thank you so much for talking to us today because we so appreciate your time and your thoughts because it's it's a truly incredible book and we can't stop banging on about it. We would just like to end our interview with you unfortunately um but with some recommendations so have you got any amazing things you've watched recently read listened to yeah um also just thank you for sharing your space and your stories and your backgrounds here too it's been it's been really lovely something i've been taking in recently i watched women talking the film which is based on yeah a novel of the same name by Miriam Taze and I usually can't stand I not that I can't say I can't handle watching uh movie to film adaptations because if I love the original text I get like like goosebumps all over my body whenever something like feels a bit different <laughs> than I imagined it but this is a true incredible adaptation um yeah, it's, it's a wonderful movie and um what else I've also been recently read a book called Mobility by Lydia Kiesling, and it sort of presents a different um, take on our future. It's about a young woman who grows up kind of and ends up working in the oil industry. And it's it's really brilliant and really smart and sort of takes place from like, I think the 1980s and into maybe 10 or 20 years in the future. It's, it's really ambitious and sprawling and wonderful. And oh, my last thing is I have to recommend this restaurant in London that I love so much. It's called Smoking Goat in Shoreditch. And it is Thai influenced or just Thai restaurant um, that works on an, a wood fire grill and everything there is absolutely delicious. I have to love that on my next trip oh, to London. Oh, here we go. Oh, we can't go Shoreditch. Yes. One recommendation that I have is the series Ahsoka, which is um, a Star Wars series, but um, it has the most incredible performance by a, um, a man called Ray Stevenson. Unfortunately, he's passed away just after filming it. And it's his last ever recorded performance. And it is tremendous. Like, you don't have to have watched Star Wars. You don't have to have any contacts. Just chuck it on and watch him just absolutely light up the screen because he's incredible. And I feel like people need to see this performance to truly understand what we've lost because he's mm. incredible. Amazing. Um, Pam, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And for our listeners, Land of Milk and Honey is out now and I will pop a link in the show notes for you to buy yourselves a copy if you haven't got one already. And is there anywhere our listeners can find you on social media? Um, yeah, it's just my full author name, C. Pam Shong, uh, and I'm on Instagram. Amazing. 
Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us um, and thank you so much listeners for listening. That is all we've got time for, so bye! bye.